You're listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, the network for the thinking Catholic. And now, your host. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Nicholas Disposito, an Associate Seminary Professor at the same seminary. Your Excellency and Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hello. Well, uh, I appreciate you doing penance, even though it's neither Lent nor Advent nor an Ember Day. Your Excellency and Father, we are going to get through Amoris Laetitia uh, because uh, all you need is, is love, uh, a, a famous philosopher once said, I think. And we have a few more chapters still to go, chapters five through nine. Obviously, we covered chapter eight in our very first episode, and I would encourage our listeners, if you're coming to this episode, maybe hit pause and go back and listen to chapters one through four, or even the very first episode uh, in which uh, Father Chikada and His Excellency deconstructed not just chapter eight, which is really the most important chapter in this horrible document, but all the reaction around the document itself. Your Excellency, we'll get right into it. Chapter five. Um, what would you like to start with? Well, he's talking about uh, the, the title of it is Love Made Fruitful. So he's talking about the procreation of children here. So um, uh, he, he makes a, a number of very odd comments. Uh, he says in number 168 uh, that each child has a place in God's heart from all eternity once he or she is conceived, the Creator's eternal dream comes true. God does not dream. This is a, a, a perfectly absurd thing to say, and, and it just as you could not ascribe dreaming in any way to God, not even by the, the you know, most stretched out metaphor. It just doesn't pertain to God. And then he, he goes on with this dream theory, he says, let us pause to think of the great value of that embryo from the moment of conception. We need to see it with the eyes of God, who always looks beyond mere appearances. Then he says, a pregnant woman can participate in God's plan by dreaming of her child. Um, for nine months, every mother and father dreams about their child. Uh, this is uh, <clears throat> John, uh, no, this is, uh, uh, he's quoting himself. You can't have a family without dreams. Once a family loses the ability to dream, children do not grow, love does not grow, life shrivels up and dies. For Christian married couples, baptism necessarily appears as part of that dream. So the, the holy sacrament of baptism, which is meant to take away original sin, is merely part of a dream for the child. It, it's It's bizarre and humanitarian, you know, as if the sacraments of the church are at the, uh, are, are made for the purpose of fulfilling dreams. And, you know, what is this dream? What, that your, your child become the head of the Communist Party in, in your country? That would be probably, uh, Bergoglio's dream if he had a child. Uh, you know, it, it just is, is humanistic nonsense. Well, just this whole idea of dream, as you say, Your Excellency, he's playing into the popular culture 
I mean, I think uh, President Obama had a, a book, Dreams of My Father. This uh, this sense of, of, of dream, again, doesn't really have a place in, in Catholic theology, certainly not in what would be considered a papal document. No, it's, it's very humanistic. Uh, number 170. Uh, he says, we love our children because they are children, not because they are beautiful or look or think as we do or embody our dreams. We love them because they are children, which again is humanistic. We love them because God wants us to love them. They are gifts of God and they are meant to go back to God. And so we love them with a supernatural charity, not merely because they are children. I mean, this, any pagan could write this. We don't need the Vicar of Christ to write these things. This is, this is just pagan. It's naturalistic and humanistic. So, you know, what, these what are... does he mean? He says, he says a child is a child. I, I mean, is this not self-evident? I, I, I'm not entirely sure what he means there. Well, you know, I think, didn't Gertrude Stein or somebody say a rose is a rose is a rose? It's nonsensical nonsense <laughs> that's the only word for it uh, you know doesn't mean anything but it's humanistic the child is loved because it is a child just like a cat loves its kittens because they're kittens because they're offspring uh, the species is reproduced so there's a natural love it's it's but in human beings it's naturalistic because it, it there human beings are raised to the level of the supernatural order uh, and they are destined toward a supernatural end. And they don't love merely the way animals love their offspring. That's important. It's a, it's one more way of being naturalistic, humanistic, that, that permeates this whole quote unquote papacy. And that is uh, to reduce Catholicism to mere naturalism and humanism, social work. Communism, socialism, uh, th that's, that's, it, it's everything for this, uh, for this man. One thing, uh, um, if I may add, that if you go a little bit before point uh, or number 167, when he speaks about um, abortion, the, it says it's bad because it's against human rights. So again, the naturalism there, and I know that the reason uh, not even mentioning God or God's law, and also the if you read between the lines in that number one six seven, uh, it seems that almost like contraception is okay, but if conception happens, you must not reject the child, and uh, and later he quotes uh, John Paul two and says responsible uh, parenthood does not mean unlimited procreation, so again the the whole idea. Uh, I mean, you can conclude that uh, in a way contraception is okay, but if you have children, you don't have to, uh, or if the conception happens, do not reject the child because he's a child, etc. So the, again, the, 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 that naturalism and uh, God is not mentioned when speaking about abortion or contraception, etc. Yes, and clearly that's a, uh, an approval of contraception uh, between the lines. Uh, that you, um, that, you know, limitation of the family and you should not reject the child if conception occurs. Both of those things presuppose artificial contraception. 
And you know, it's just one more uh, problem in this document. All right, Your Excellency. What else? Uh, what else in Chapter Five should we look at? Uh, in in one, number one seventy two, paragraph one seventy two, uh, he says, um, "Husband and wife, father and mother, both cooperate with the love of God, the Creator, and are in a certain sense His interpreters." They show their children the maternal and paternal face of the Lord. So he's placing femininity in God, which of course would be a heresy. Uh, so uh, God is a mother, and this is connected to other things that he has said along those lines. Uh, just as the contraception that we just talked about is connected to other things that he has said regarding contraception, that it is occasionally permitted. Um, and uh, that, that so so you have to take this in the context of Bergoglio. And your what how would you classify that statement to refer to the maternal face of the Lord? Is, is it simply inaccurate or heretical? What how would you how would you characterize that? that? Well, if he means by it that God can properly be called a mother as he can properly be called a father. That's heresy, plain and simple. If he means by it that God has, say, the, the love and tenderness of a mother and therefore certain maternal aspects in that sense, that wouldn't be heresy, but it would be very dangerous, let's put it that way. It certainly uh, uh, should not be, it would be very easy to confuse that with, with actually being a mother. Uh, but uh, that he, you know, has a tender love that a mother has uh, is not wrong to say, but you have to be very careful. But, you know, he, he has said other things that would lead you to believe that he be believes it in the wrong sense, that he, he intends it in the wrong sense. Going to 173, um, he, he says, I certainly value feminism but one that does not demand uniformity or negate motherhood. So, you know, feminism is something that has grown up since the 1960s, especially, and it has destroyed the human family, totally destroyed it. And here he is praising feminism. The feminism should be condemned. It has not uh, in any way liberated women uh, as if they needed to be liberated in the first place. It has... Uh, uh, destroyed the family uh, that that women should be who are who have children are out in the workplace while their children are being cared for by nannies or some other sort of alien person uh, that has destroyed the human family also that the wife and husband are as if two co-equals each making uh, their own salaries and each living in the same house that destroys the the uh, the institution of the household, where there is a uh, an authority and there is an assistant. That is, there is the husband and father. There is the wife and mother, uh, and uh, that hierarchy is destroyed. And that's why you see so many children who are messed up today, because of feminism, because that hierarchy of the family has been totally destroyed. And I think that is the reason for uh, many of the shootings that you see 
in uh, schools today where these children are so completely messed up, most of them the effects, uh, uh, the, the victims of divorce, which feminism definitely has brought on, uh, the, uh, they, they become so distraught and, and fall into all sorts of psychological problems and emotional problems that they, they take it out on others. Uh, I, I assign it mostly to that. So, you know, to praise feminism is, is, it's like praising the atomic bomb or something. You know, it has just destroyed family life. And it, one thing that, um, even though he seems to say that, uh, say that a feminism that does not negate uh, motherhood, but it, it only refers to motherhood in the sense of having the child, because before it says, nowadays we acknowledge as legitimate and indeed desirable that women wish to study, work, develop their skills and have personal goals. And in the next chapter, he's going to say that we shouldn't uh, consider uh, the a man staying at home when the woman goes to work as something that belongs to I mean something feminine. So basically, he's um, the the only motherhood that he says that is against I mean the, the feminism that shouldn't negate motherhood. It's just having the child, but not uh, necessarily taking care of of him or her because the father can do that as well, and that shouldn't be uh, considered as a feminine thing to um, to be basically in the house and, and educate the children. It is to destroy the God-made hierarchy of the home. It is to go against nature because a woman's nature is to take care of children. She loves children naturally. It is the father's nature to go out and hunt, so to speak. That is to, to get the money to support the house and get the food and do everything uh, uh, that pertains to those things. That's that's the God-given nature, and this reverses the nature. Just as we see, uh, you know, women now in all sorts of unnatural positions. They just made a woman, placed the woman in charge of West Point, which to me, uh, just I mean, can think think of a a a, a woman uh, calling out commands to soldiers. I really fear for the security of this country in the in the future, with so many women in the military, and now they're going to be in combat. Uh, I really do. I, I fear for the security of it. Uh, that that is, it is contrary to nature, and it, it will destroy morale. Uh, it will also, when you have women in combat, for example, uh, when they get wounded, it is the male nature to take care of them. Whereas if a man gets wounded, they'll say to him, look, you know, uh, do your best to stay alive. We'll, we'll come back and get you. But if a woman falls down woman, uh, wounded, then it's they lose two from their small company in order to take care of the woman that, that has fallen down. Uh, it just uh, is, is it's contrary to nature. Whenever you go against nature, you're inviting so many problems upon yourself. Uh, that that they're indescribable, and I, I, as I said, I, I fear for the future of our country. I would tell our listeners, His Excellency is not making that up. Uh, that's actually from an Israeli study. The Israelis were very keen to integrate women into their military early on, and I remember hearing about that in boot camp that the they discontinued uh, the use of uh, use of women in frontline combat. The Israelis did because they saw that it basically degraded 
their movement forward, two men would leave, whereas they would never do that when a man was wounded. Everyone would continue to push forward. So that's not a theory of his excellency. It's, it's battle-tested, actually. Yes. Uh, in 175, uh, we read, A mother who watches over her child with tenderness and compassion helps him or her to grow in confidence and to experience that the world is a good and welcoming place. Good and welcoming place. First of all, even from the natural point of view, it is not a good and welcoming place. Talk to people who live in Bangladesh and who live in, in, or in Africa or in the Sudan. And, you know, if the world is a good and welcoming place, those people are, all, are on the level of survival. And there are many millions, if not billions of people in this world who are on the level of survival. To say that the world is a good and welcoming place is just not true from the natural point of view. It is a place that, in which it is very difficult to make a living, very difficult to find things to eat. We have to work hard for it. People want to take it away from us when we have it. It is not a good and welcoming place. It is full of crime. It is full of war. It is, it is full of all sorts of sins that make us sad. <laughs> anti-popes too and anti-popes that, that have ruined the Catholic Church uh, so it, the uh, but the worst of it is that this is naturalism that the the you should tell your child that about original sin and about the uh, how the, the the spiritual combat against the effects of sin all during his life you don't tell your child that the world is a good and welcoming place and train him for that you train him for the for the uh, to to resist temptations and to to go to heaven despite many many obstacles. So it, again, it's it's another dose of naturalism that we get all the time from him. He says, moving on to um, uh, number one hundred and eighty four. He says. By their witness, as well as their words, families speak to others of Jesus. They pass on the faith, they arouse a desire for God, and they reflect the beauty of the gospel and its way of life. Christian marriages thus enliven society by their witness of fraternity, their social concern, their outspokenness on behalf of the underprivileged, their luminous faith and their active hope. Their fruitfulness expands and in countless ways makes, God love, makes God's love present in society. So this makes, again, Christian marriage in the service of social work. Uh, it, it, another dose of naturalism. Usually a Bishop Sanborn formulation for this would be, what a lot of hooey. <laughs> yes. Well, it's just... He's constantly peddling the naturalistic because, as I have always said, he's a communist. And for them, humanity is God. So religion should, in a way, worship humanity, should be at the service of humanity. And we're seeing this again and again in this document. It is a, it is a pernicious error to say that. It, it, is, it is a form of apostasy. But we get it all the time from him.
Don't forget, he's the man that accepted from the uh, Gran Cajuna of Bolivia the uh, cross that had the, uh, I was going to say the swastika, but the, uh, the hammer and sickle on it. Yes. And he, he, his, his background is, is, is very heavily communist. He, he has no objection to communism. Uh, and uh, so we're seeing this in his teachings. In number 186, uh, he says this, The Eucharist demands that we be members of the one body of the church. Now, that can be interpreted in a perfectly Catholic sense. Isn't that what he means, though? Those who approach the body and blood of Christ may not wound that same body by creating scandalous distinctions and divisions among its members. This is what is meant to discern the body of the Lord. Now, he's referring to St. Paul, who says that those who receive the Holy Eucharist unworthily uh, are guilty of the body and blood of Christ, not discerning the body of the Lord. The traditional interpretation of this is that they do not discern the transubstantiated bread, that is, the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity uh, under the species of Christ, under the, the species of bread and wine. That is the traditional interpretation. I believe even it was done by a uh, council. But in any case, the, uh, that, uh, that is the universal interpretation of that. And it is always used as a proof of, of the of the uh, real presence of Christ. Now we're saying, he's saying, that it means that they're not discerning the church, that they're, they are making divisions. You know who who's he, he's referring to. He's referring to those rosary people, those Hail Mary counters, and, and those people who are rigid and who resist the Holy Ghost, etc. They are the, the ones that are not discerning the body of the Lord. He says, uh, to acknowledge it with faith and charity, both in the sacramental signs and in the community. See, so it's changing the whole idea of that verse. Those who fail to do so eat and drink judgment against themselves. So, you know, those who uh, divide the church uh, drink judgment against themselves. Uh, so he says, he continues, the celebration of the Eucharist thus becomes a constant summons for everyone to examine himself or herself, to open the doors of the family to greater fellowship with the underprivileged, here we go again, and in this way to receive the sacrament of that Eucharistic love which makes us one body. We must not forget that the mysticism of the sacrament has a social character. See, so he can't get off of it. Uh, he, he's obsessed with that. Everything turns into something social, something humanitarian. So even the, the Blessed Sacrament is itself. So we have to, it's well, the, and, the sacrament of human solidarity. The, the thing is, Your Excellency, I always feel this goes back to Judas. I, I feel this ploy has been around since the time of our Lord. It's not something that, that's new or even uh, that goes back to the, the Protestant revolt. It goes back to Judas pretending 
that he was interested in the poor when he was just interested in the money? I don't think so. I think that was a different thing. I, I wouldn't accuse Bergoglio of being avaricious, just of being an atheist. I think he's a, a, a communist that lost the faith many, many years ago and has uh, transformed his faith, quote-unquote, into a, a faith in humanity and that the church should be at the service of humanity. It's all in Gaudium et Spes. Nothing is in Bergoglio, which cannot be first found in Vatican II. The church at the service of humanity. Paul VI, no one more than we have the cult of man. That's what he said in the closing of the council. No one meaning more, no one more than the church has the cult of man. It, it goes way back. 50 years. More than 50 years. See, so, it's just another, uh, another example of the uh, what I would call communism in, in him and social gospel as a result of his communism. So, moving on. Um, these chapters are, uh, are not as meaty, so to speak, as chapter 8. So. These are um, the vegetarian chapters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, he says an interesting thing here. Many people can testify that they owe their initiation into the Christian life to their grandparents. And <laughs> grandparents, does that mean their parents don't believe anymore? <laughs> that, that, that their parents have lost the faith? And that's probably true in many cases. Are you in 191, Your, your Excellency? That's in 192. Uh, 192, okay. Yes. Uh, in, um, let's see. Moving on, um, you have the great discovery of uh, of number two two. It says in the replies given to the worldwide consultation, it became clear that ordained ministers often lack the training needed to deal with the complex problems currently facing families. So they. Um, the, the experience of the broad oriental tradition of a married clergy could also be drawn upon. Oh, oh that's a given. That's a given. That's just a matter of time. Whether he will live long enough to get it done is another thing, but that's just a matter of time. They are desperate for priests. In Europe, they're, they're ordaining virtually no one. You know, there's some ordinations in this country, not many, but they are desperate. So that will increase their numbers if they, uh, if they permit marriage. And then this, I have no doubt that they will uh, permit women to be ordained. And I'm all for it. I'm totally for it. Uh, and. <laughs> well, this goes with the idea of dignity. They should have personal goals, Your Excellency, and they should want to work outside the house. Yes, and then you can dream about your daughter that she can be a priest one day. <laughs> um, so we're in uh, for our listeners we're into chapter 6 Father Disposito read from paragraph 202 which is in chapter 6 so we're out of chapter 5 now um, and now we're talking about seminarians yes he says at the end of number 203 quote the presence of lay people families and especially the presence of women in priestly formation 
promotes an appreciation of the diversity and the complementarity of the different vocations in the church. So that, you, that, you should allow you should allow all sorts of people to come into the seminary is what he's saying, Your Excellency. Yes, I mean, women in priestly formation. I mean, there you have it. Why are they being formed? Why why are they being trained except to be ordained one day? You would say, you know, a, a normal Catholic would say, well, they're wasting their time and their money. They're not ever going to see ordination. But he obviously gives an open door to them by that comment. That, that's encouraging them to, to continue in their studies so they can be priestesses. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think it's coming down the line. It's in, it's in the pipeline. And as I have said earlier in other shows, I always thought, well, when they ordain women priests, that will make everybody jump ship. And they will realize that the Novus Ordo is a false religion. Now, I don't say that anymore. I think they will welcome the, the, the women priests. And they will think it's a wonderful thing that women can do this now. And that the church has come around on this. I see the way people react to Bergoglio it's thus far. They think he's wonderful and that he has loosened up all of these rules. So they are they really have a carte blanche to do anything they want right now. There'll be very few who will object. I'm waiting to see the women deacons, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing a woman, a woman deacon be a deacon at a motu proprio mass someplace. I think that would be quite appropriate. You know, at a traditional motu proprio mass, and you have... Uh, you know, uh, instead of Reverend Mister, you have Reverend Miss or Reverend Misses as the in, in a deacon's outfit, uh, helping or along. Reverend Miz. <laughs> Reverend Miz might be better. Yes, yeah, that's. Uh, or or if she's a transgender, then I don't know what you say. <laughs> well, they already have the transitional deacons, so. <laughs> so. Uh, I just think that uh, people in the Novus Ordo who uh, have any hope that things are going to turn around or even just stay the same should abandon that hope and face reality. Uh, also, one, one thing, just before um, saying, uh, speaking about the presence of women, he said that seminarians should receive a more extensive interdisciplinary and not merely doctrinal formation in the areas of engagement and marriage. So it's on the first time, and uh, uh, later on he will say something similar with regard to when you teach the catechism to people who are contemplating marriage, that you don't have to, I mean, doctrine had to do uh, not too much, but uh, or, or just the, um, not to emphasize that too much, but to have other things, uh, here, just more extensive interdisciplinary, whatever that means, formation. Well, so, Father, do you think that's a code word for pastoral slash discernment slash encounter? Well, I don't. Who, who knows? knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I know. I know for for a fact that a seminary in Argentina, in actually in my near my town, uh, in seminaries, they told seminarians to have. Um, and this was probably fifteen years ago or more. Uh, to have girlfriends in order to basically to try that it, to try their vocation. So if if I mean if basically if they were okay with the girlfriend, probably um, 
uh, I don't know, I don't know what they will do, but that that was okay for seminarians to have a girlfriend just to to make sure that um, the reason was that to see if they were uh, secure, sure of their vocation or something like that. So I don't know that here is saying they have to have something like that as uh, in all seminaries or I don't know, uh, but at least that. And not merely doctrinal, like just to have moral theology and uh, sacramental theology is, is not enough. You have to have this interdisciplinary formation for them to, in order to understand the modern culture. Well, he says, he says not merely doctrinal. I didn't know that that's what they were teaching in modern seminaries, doctrine. So, I mean, not merely doctrinal. Some kind of doctrine. <laughs> Communism. <laughs> Social work. Uh, certainly, Novus Ordo doctrine, that everyone has a doctrine. Even if you say there's no doctrine, that's a doctrine. There's, there's, there's always a, a doctrine and there's always an indoctrination. So, it, it's just what doctrine you're talking about. Uh, in number, let's see, this is number 207 regarding... Uh, uh, instructing those who are to be married, this is the quote, they do not need to be taught the entire catechism or overwhelmed with too much information. All right, so just a little bit of catechism. Uh, later on he says, marriage preparation should be a kind of initiation to the sacrament of matrimony. I know you notice how he takes out of context uh quotation of Saint Ignatius, Saint Ignatius in, in the anot, anot, uh, his notes for the exor spiritual exercises said that it is not great knowledge but rather the ability to feel and relish things interiorly that contents and satisfies the soul but he's talking about this I mean how, how you have to um, in, in a retreat not to give too many speculative things but uh, to try to move the, the people to, to love God he takes that and uh, Changes the the whole context and meaning to, uh, for he, in order to say that you don't have to teach the too much catechism, not too much doctrine of the church, but something else. And uh, that's the quotation of Saint Ignatius. So he takes it absolutely out of context, in of obviously on purpose. Most of those Novus Ordo priests wouldn't be able to teach the catechism in any case. Um. So, in number 212, uh, he talks about the preparations the, uh, for marriage, such as the dress and the reception, and, uh, and he says this odd thing, the same kind of preoccupation with a big celebration also affects certain uh, de facto unions, meaning people living together in fornication, because of the expenses involved the couple, instead of being concerned above all with their love and solemnizing it in the presence of others, never get married. Notice there's no concern about God. <laughs> no concern about the sixth commandment of God and of hellfire. But it's just they're, they're, they're uh, concerned about their love. You know, see, and so they never get married because... It's too expensive. The dress is too expensive, and all of these other problems that you have to have—the reception and everything—and we know, you know, today 
the the hundred thousand dollar reception, where it, it you know you you have a trophy child, a trophy daughter, and you you just spend a fortune on the reception uh, because uh, she's your darling trophy child, and that's her big day. So you, that, that that's the the culture, in, at least in this country. When you said trophy daughter, I thought you were referring to the fact that some of these couples have one of their children born out of wedlock be the flower girl. Uh, (laughs) I see that all the time, and they're in a white dress, and these people have no sense of irony uh, at all. Yes. uh, I saw a picture recently uh, where the daughter, I think, was being carried down the aisle by the man or the woman uh, as they got married, the the illegitimate, then illegitimate daughter, but I guess they were legitimized. But, uh, you know, there's just no... This there's just no shame about anything anymore. This is just normal. To clarify, uh, again, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Catholic practice, what would normally have been the case? How would the church have treated the legitimization of uh, a, 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 a marriage, someone, two, two people coming together who had conceived a child outside of wedlock? How would the church have uh, conducted that marriage? Well, the... Uh, you would tell the woman that she had to wear a dark blue dress. She cannot wear a white dress, just a nice dark blue dress that did not look like a wedding dress. And uh, that the ceremony would not have a mass. It would be very private. It would just be the uh, the wedding ceremony itself. And only immediate family would be invited, you know, maybe not more than 10 people. It would not be any, there would not be anything grandiose about it at all. Because it would be a, the the church would not want to glorify the idea that someone was uh, living in sin. And and therefore the marriage is, is, while it is praiseworthy that they do come and get married, nonetheless there can be no solemnization of it. It has to be something very private. Because it is a, they they are doing something that they should have done a long time ago before they uh, lived in fornication, before they should have gotten married first. And so there's a a scorn upon the whole thing. And that is to tell everybody that this is something very improper to, to live in sin. Would you say in a certain sense, Your Excellency, the Church is not really celebrating with you, but rather simply uh, moving forward in, in an effective way? Yes, it, it, the whole thing has the pull of sin over it. That these people are, are coming back from sin, and yes, it is good that they are coming back from sin. The Church rejoices about that. But there is a social sin in the whole thing, that you have live together as husband and wife, even though you were not husband and wife. And that's scandal, that's public scandal. And the church cannot bring you down the aisle in a white dress and, you know, with trumpets blasting, uh, uh, you know, it just doesn't, it's totally inappropriate. And this would be the same circumstance, Your Excellency, if if, if uh, you were put, getting a, a couple ready for marriage and suddenly someone was found to be with child. Uh, uh, the priest wouldn't accelerate the wedding date to avoid scandal. They would go into this alternate ceremony that you were talking about. Yes, they would. Yes, because it will eventually be known that she was with child. 
So, uh, yes, that would change everything. That would alter everything. Yes. The idea of the white dress is that it symbolizes virginity. The idea of the veil is that it symbolizes virginity. And that's why the more traditional veils covered the whole face. Uh, and uh, uh, the she came down as a virgin with her father, and her father handed her over from his care to the care of the husband. That, that's the whole idea, that she, that she go from one household, so to speak, to the other. And, but now, I don't have to tell you, it's, it's the, the, the runway of the Miss America, you know, where, where she, you know, has, has, you know, maybe about 40% clothing on, and, and she comes down the aisle as if it were a runway. And everybody's looking at her, this is her big day, and, and, you know, in most cases, these women are not virgins. Uh, most women do not retain their virginity these days. Uh, it, it, let's face it, uh, it's a, a very rare woman that would, that would go to her matrimony as a virgin. Very rare today. Whereas that was the, the norm, uh, you know, say a hundred years ago. It was the norm, and if you were not a virgin, it, it was a shameful thing. You know, you, your husband wouldn't want you. Uh, it would be something that you would certainly disclose before the marriage. So, uh, you know, everything has changed, and, and Bergoglio is just on the bandwagon with all of the social change, the acceptance of, of fornication, divorce, and everything else. So that was in paragraph 212, I think you were talking about your excellency, where yes, yes. They, they never get married. 213, sorry. Um, he he makes this comment, which is typically modernist, that in their preparation for marriage, the couple should be encouraged to make the liturgical celebration a profound personal experience. So that means you design your own, uh, or you have the priest sing some stupid um, thing at the altar. There was a, a famous YouTube where an Irish priest was singing some sort of nonsensical song at the altar, and everyone was laughing and clapping. And it, That's what Novus Order weddings should be, uh, releasing doves or, or some other you know oddity uh, so that it's this personal experience that you have. Um, and then in number 215... He says, the procreative meaning of sexuality, the language of the body, and the signs of love shown throughout married life all become an uninterrupted continuity of liturgical language. And conjugal life becomes, in a certain sense, liturgical. I mean, this goes back to the Old Testament, where they had the, the priest prostitutes. I'm sorry to say that, but... Where there, where the pagans next to, uh, who live next to the Israelites had religions in which there was a sacred sex as, as the, as the liturgical act. I, I know it's, it's disgusting to think about, but it's true. And, but what is the, what is he talking about? That, that, I mean, he, he's as clear as day. And that is that sexual intercourse becomes a type of liturgical act. Nice quote in the Saint John Paul II. Yeah, Saint John Paul II, you know, who is uh, uh, known for you know his uh, his talks on nudity. 
But that is a typically Novus Ordo idea, that the mass and sexual intercourse are very analogical. I've heard it before. I heard it from modernists. Uh, there's one example that is so dirty, I can't even say it on this show. Oh. But they that is a theme among the modernists. So there you have it. I mean, there is... Sexual intercourse is a natural act. It has nothing sacred about it. It has a moral aspect about it, certainly. Uh, it has to be in accordance with the laws of God. But it, there is nothing sacred about it. It is the way in which the, the species is reproduced. There's nothing sacred about that. It's a natural act. Well, it's what we have in common with the animals. Is it proper to say in the Catholic view, you can see that, that the the marital act uh within the context of marriage has been has been made a has been sacralized in a way that uh instead of simply being a natural act it is now joined uh with the the creative power uh, of our lord uh to to bring new souls into the world so it's not merely uh, an animalistic act but now it's become uh something something higher yeah. yes you could say that it has a uh, but it, it there is nothing properly sacred about it. It is certainly not liturgical. <laughs> it's not liturgical. It's not a, some sort of sacred act. Uh, it and it, it uh, the and the the object of it is the conception of a child conceived in original sin. Don't forget that the child is not conceived in the state of grace. The child is conceived in original sin. And it is through, the original sin is transmitted through sexual intercourse. Yes. Oh. So, uh, and, you know, some authors say that is one of the reasons why human beings consider those things to be dirty. For that precise reason that that is the moment of transmission of original sin. Oh. So to, to, to compare that to our blessed Lord's death on the cross and his giving of his life for sinners, where do you, <laughs> where on earth do you have an analogy between those two things? I mean, it's kind of sickening to think about. Uh. You know, but that's that's uh, that's Novus Ordo theology for you. Speaking of Novus Ordo theology, at the end of uh, paragraph two sixteen, we read that frequently the celebrant speaks to a congregation that includes people who seldom participate in the life of the church, or who are members of other Christian denominations or religious communities. The occasion thus provides a valuable opportunity to pro proclaim the gospel of Christ. I mean, I, I suppose that's probably pretty true, Your Excellency. Uh, a congregation that includes people who seldom participate in the life of the church or who are members of other Christian denominations. Well, I can just think of the weddings we do where you have both Novosordites and Protestants. Uh, I always notice that the Protestants know how to behave in church. They sit and are very respectful. They are well-dressed, whereas the Novosordites come in looking like slobs and they talk throughout the, they sit and talk in church, and then they talk throughout the ceremony. 
What a disgrace. It is. It is a disgrace. It is a disgrace. And if you tell them to keep quiet, they get mad at you. They stare at you. That's why we. the first thing you do on wedding day is to take out the Blessed Sacrament. You, you have to hide Almighty God because it is the parade of the pagans that come into your church, I'm sorry to say. And, and every traditional priest is sick to his stomach on every day that there's a wedding. In most cases, you know, unless it's a very pious family that invites only pious people. But in, you know, from, in most cases, uh, you just have a, a sick feeling in your stomach when you have to get up on Saturday morning and say, oh, there's a wedding today. Because then well, you have to, you yeah. have to wait outside and watch out for the filthy dress that, that parades into the church. Uh, tight cocktail dresses. Say, those, those people would not survive the, the Bishop, uh, Sanborn, uh, pre-mass walkthrough. Uh, are you are you out there with with surpluses to to hand to people? Uh, how do you how do you deal with that, Your Excellency, in well, the no, practical we, order? Well, no, we just the keep them out. If somebody is uh, is seriously immodest, we just say you can't come in. Hmm. Do you, do you, I mean, how often does that happen? Oh, it happens at every wedding. As I said, there's a rare time when both parties come from pious families. And where their their relatives are all pious, that, that's extremely rare because many times their relatives are Novosordites or, or worse, and and have no care for any kind of rules. So and, even if and, they're instructed ahead of time that this is there's a dress code when you come here, it's my wedding, please respect it. They don't care. There's always a, some people that. You know, the only dress in, in her closet is something that you would wear to a cocktail party. All right. And the, it's halfway up her thigh. Uh, it, it emphasizes all of the contours of the body. It is low in the front and low in the back. I mean, it's, it's something that some tart at a cocktail party would wear. And that's their dress. They're just trying to push your excellency. You tell them there's a dress code and they go, Oh, I'll show them. And then they show up that way. I don't know. It could be. Uh, it could be. I don't have anything else to wear. This is my dress. You know. I. I don't know. I don't get into the psychology of the of the <laughs> of the badly dressed woman. I just uh, know she can't come into church. That's all. If any of our listeners need any uh, further instruction, uh, His Excellency um, recently had a, a sermon published uh, in which he read a pastoral letter. Uh, with commentary, I might add. Uh, yes. You can find that on uh, Most Holy Trinity's sermons site if you go to mhtseminary.org and go to sermons. Um, and Father Disposito also maintains the uh, the sermons page. So if you follow him on Twitter, uh, you can find a lot of those sermons posted there. Here's a, another typically Novus Ordo statement. Might we say, this is in number 221, might we say that the greatest mission, the greatest mission of two people in love is to help one another become, respectively, more a man and more a woman. <laughs> and the answer is so, I mean, it's obvious. No, you might not say that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, maybe they'll, they'll help each other to change genders or something like that. But how do you help a man to become more of a man? 
uh, help a woman to be more become more of a woman. <laughs> well, and you would think the next sentence might give you a bit more insight, but it, it just leads you further into the wilderness. Fostering growth means helping a person to shape his or her own identity. That's so typically Novus Ordo. Kind of you know, finding yourself, uh, discovering yourself, who you are. I remember that in the Novus Ordo Seminary. I thought, I know who I am. <laughs> I know when I was born. I know what I want to do. Uh, I have no trouble figuring out who I am. <laughs> this is, how do they expect us to take this seriously? I'm going to help you to be more of a woman. <laughs> she has no trouble being a woman. She doesn't need any help from a man to be a woman. And vice versa. If they do need help, I think they've got major problems. Maybe they shouldn't get married. I just, it, it always sounds wrong, even in these Novus Ordo documents, it goes back to Gaudium et Spes, whenever the, this thing pretending to be the Catholic Church, whenever they, they venture into psychology, they just sound foolish. I mean, psychology do. just doesn't hang well on the church. The church has much, much more clear, much clearer things to say than, than modern psychology can offer. Yes, it has the catechism, but they shouldn't be told too much of the catechism. You they shot the entire catechism. No, just a little bit. First chapter or so. <laughs> but we know, that it, you know, remember, Bergoglio says God doesn't exist, so I guess we have to cut out the first chapter. Uh, so, um, uh, and then the Trinity would have to go because it talks too much about the one God. He says there, there's, you know, and then, then there's the, the part about no Catholic God, so that would have to go too. So... <laughs> Uh, skipping to number 242. Now, I don't know what chapter we're in, but this okay. is number 242. It's still six. It, it's still in chapter six. Uh, at the same time, this is in the middle of it, divorced people who have not remarried and often bear witness to marital fidelity ought to be encouraged to find in the Eucharist nourishment they need to sustain them in their present state of life. So the, the question is, are, is he talking about divorce and remarried or, or not? So uh, number 243, it is important that the divorced who have entered a new union should be made to feel part of the church. They are not excommunicated. I mean, it's right so, there in black and white. There it is. That, that completely, it, it is a red herring. Because what they are, are public sinners. Whether they're excommunicated or not is merely a question of law. What they are, are public sinners. And therefore, they must be excluded from the sacraments on the title of public sin. Not on the title of excommunication. So, you know, if the church wants to excommunicate them or not, that's up to the, to the Pope. There's, he can make the canon law that they are, and in the traditional canon law, they were excommunicated. They lifted that in the new canon law. That is purely a question of discipline in the church. And, you know, you can have a good one or a bad one, but that's discipline of the church. What is the moral law is that they are public sinners. And public sinners cannot receive the sacraments, the, uh, except for penance, uh, if they are sorry for what they did. 
And in this case, they would have to split up from their false spouses. See, so, so this, you know, this, this placing it on the level of excommunication is, is just a distraction. It has nothing to do with excommunication. It has to do with public sin. Going on to certain complex situations, number 247. <clears throat> Issues involving mixed marriages require particular attention. Marriages between Catholics and other baptized persons have their own particular nature, but they contain numerous elements that could well be made good use of and developed both for their intrinsic value and for the contribution that they can make to the ecumenical movement. For this purpose, an effort should be made to establish cordial cooperation between the Catholic and non-Catholic ministers from the time that preparations begin for the marriage and the wedding ceremony. Now, St. Paul had something to say about mixed marriages. He said, what does Christ have to do with Belial? He, he warned the, the, the early Catholics not to choose pagan spouses because he said Christ has nothing to do with Belial, meaning a pagan god. And, you know, why are you choosing pagans to marry? The church has always been against mixed marriages and has merely tolerated them for very serious reasons and when certain conditions are present. Uh, and if those conditions are not present, then you cannot marry someone outside the church. Uh, so uh, this idea that this is a great, uh, this is wonderful that people, you know, Protestants and Catholics are coming together in, in matrimony and that the Catholic is going to benefit. Actually, the Catholic might benefit today if you're talking about Novus Ordo because the Protestant probably believes more Catholic dogmas than the Novus Ordite does. So, you know, he or she might actually learn something. Maybe the rest of the catechism that they were never taught in, in, the, in the preparation. Uh, at least they would learn from the Protestant to keep their mouth shut when they go into church. It's unbelievable to me that that happened. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, um, and then it also in 247, he talks about Eucharistic sharing. That means where Protestants receive quote-unquote, Catholic uh, communion wafers, and vice versa. He says, although the spouses in a mixed marriage share the sacraments of baptism and matrimony, Eucharistic sharing can only be exceptional, and in each case according to the stated norms. That means every once in a while you can commit the sin of sacrilege in an exceptional cases, because it is a sacrilege, and intrinsically so that a that someone who is non-catholic received the catholic eucharist because the eucharist is a symbol of the unity of the church so it's always a sacrilege they can never receive it but in the novus ordo and that's in uh, vatican ii uh, it's in the new code of canon law that uh, for in exceptional cases this sacrilege is okay all right so that there's there it is again in um, in amoris laetitia so, uh, in, uh, in, in 248, uh, I believe that's the same, that's the one, no, the next one, uh, he talks about religious liberty. He says, in some countries where freedom of religion does not exist, 
the Christian spouse is obliged to convert to another religion in order to marry, and therefore cannot celebrate a canonical marriage involving disparity of cult or baptize the children. We must therefore reiterate the necessity that the religious freedom of all be respected. Okay, so that means all religions uh, must uh, uh, be respected. Uh, yes, by the way, that's a quote of the final uh, relatio, the relatio finalis, which means that all the bishops signed it. He's uh, now um, basically uh, having this in this document. So all the bishops plus Francis have the same interpretation of religious liberty. So the uh, I was listening to one person of the recognize and resist camp that he says that we need a clarification for what doesn't mean religious liberty in Vatican II. So you have all the bishops here, plus Francis, and, and many times, I mean, Paul VI, John Paul II, Ratzinger, and Albert Goglio, they all understand exactly the same thing, that the freedom is for all, not only for Catholics. It's a right for all, for everyone because of the human dignity, etc., that has to be respected. So there's no doubt that that's the interpretation of that everybody gives to religious liberty. Then in, in number 250, we have this interesting thing about same-sex marriages. I'll read the whole paragraph. The church makes her own the attitude of the Lord Jesus, who offers his boundless love to each person without exception. During the Synod, we discuss the situation of families whose members include persons who experience same-sex attraction, a situation not easy either for parents or for children. We would like before all else to reaffirm that every person, regardless of sexual orientation, ought to be respected in his or her dignity and treated with consideration, while every sign of unjust discrimination is to be carefully avoided, particularly any form of aggression and violence. Such families should be given respectful pastoral guidance so that those who manifest a homosexual orientation can receive the assistance they need to understand and fully carry out God's will in their lives. Yeah, that, that's you know, sufficiently vague to to uh, avoid, uh, in order to avoid condemnation. But where is it in in there that this this homosexual orientation is intrinsically disordered, which is even in their 1992 catechism? that this is a, a, a disorder that drives somebody to commit sins against nature. It's an appetite that drives someone to commit sins against nature. Where is that? It's as if somebody, you know, is, you know, is born with rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. You know, it's a, the, there's a glaring absence of uh, of what should be said about this. And, uh, yes, it is true that those people should not be beaten up or in any way, uh, molested, but it is also true that they have a, uh, whether it's their own fault or not, they have a, a, a tendency, an appetite towards something which is contrary to nature and therefore has a moral aspect to it. So, uh, um, and here, I mean, my my opinion is including homosexuals that are active homosexuals, 
And I also I think that it's implicit uh, a blasphemy of saying that uh, every uh, sign of unjust discrimination uh, is to be carefully avoided when God himself, if you read the book of Genesis, um, gave a, a little bit of a sign of, in, of discrimination <laughs> towards uh, homosexuals. And so, again, without clarifying, I mean, he's included every homosexual, homosexual person, not only those who have just the orientation that may perhaps mortify that orientation, but even those who just live with it and, and don't do anything to change that. Uh, so uh, that we have to absolutely... Uh, I mean, there is always discrimination in the, in the sense that in, in taking in the in in, a, in the proper sense we have to discriminate um meaning not to accept uh, the sin on, on in the sinners love the sinner but this the sin is i mean it's a, in this case an abomination that god already showed what he thinks about sodomy and very clearly so then 251, expounding on the same theme it says in discussing the dignity and mission of the family the Synod Fathers observed that, as for proposals to place unions between homosexual persons on the same level as marriage, there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. Now, so that means, well, they're, they're uh, not what God intended. All right where is the condemnation of these things as being contrary to nature and inviting the punishment of God. It, they're just saying, well, you can't compare the two. It's a very, very soft uh, reprobation of these things. And, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it, they should have condemned it outright, but they, they're incapable of that. You can see that they're tiptoeing through this whole thing. Um, um, you see in, in the next chapter, the chapter 7, that, uh, that considers sins uh, of a sexual nature as uh, basically um, that are not responsible acts, but doesn't condemn it as sins or as, as something that yeah, sometimes is intrinsically, I mean, sometimes the the intrinsically evil nature of those sins. So the again, this is perhaps is immature or, or not fully responsible. That's the only condemnation that it gives to sexual uh, um, sins. We have to understand all of this in the context of Bergoglio, Bergoglio who held hands with this uh, homosexual activist priest uh, as he was going into church. Uh, who put on the rainbow uh, watch band in St. Peter's and had himself photographed with it. It was very clear that, that you know, close-up of it, the rainbow watch band, who has invited transgenders, remember, uh, what was it, Jose or whatever his name was, Diego and his wife, Diego being a transgender man, as, that is woman to man, uh, uh, married, so to speak, to a, a woman, uh, you know, a real woman, uh, and, um, you know, we have to understand this in that context. Also, greeting with great joy at the American Embassy, uh, excuse me, the, the Vatican Embassy in Washington, uh, a, a, an old homosexual friend of his, uh, some younger man, uh, who was with his homosexual partner, 
uh, and there was there was a picture of John the Twenty Third, I think, and uh, uh, it's I think maybe John Paul II, and then Pius the Twelfth, and as Father Chicada pointed out, the only one not smiling was Pius the Twelfth. In the background, you can see three of them, and <laughs> Pius the Twelfth was not smiling. But you know, in the context uh, of those and other things he has said and done, uh, you know, who am I to judge and all of those things? Uh, I think that the, this comment is very significant. Uh, there, there is a, a, a de facto acceptance of unnatural vice among them, and uh, it, it is. When you think about it, you can't even. I mean, if you try to associate that with the Roman Catholic Church and the, the teaching of the Church and the practice of the Church, it's two things that are, that are, light years apart and polarized. Absolutely. Is there anything else in Chapter Six that you want to address before we move into Chapter Seven, Your Excellency? Uh, no, I think we're done with that. Yes, number 273. Person may clearly and willingly desire something evil, but do so as the result of an irresistible passion or a poor upbringing. And first of all, the cases of irresistible passion are very rare. That someone has so much passion in what he is doing that he loses his reason. Right, that is, uh, and, and really no passion is irresistible. Uh, passion never overtakes the will. It's just that the, uh, your, uh, the person might become, uh, so passionate that his will is, uh, is in a sense no longer, his, in other words, his, his judgment is no longer functioning. That can happen. That can happen, but it is extremely rare. It ha it's, you know, I've never heard a case of it in my 41 years of the priesthood. It's extremely rare that someone would have that you know, passion, that vehement. So even to bring it up is, is nonsensical. Or poor upbringing, as if, you know, that you were n never told the catechism or something like that, that you, uh, you know, cannot control yourself. It is true that there are many young people who do not know that for example, fornication is wrong. There's a lot of young people who, uh, that was the case in the Roman Empire, that they they thought it was either, a, you know, some light wrong or no wrong at all, the pagans. And and it is quite possible uh, that, that young people uh, are deceived that way. They think as long as there's love, it's okay. Uh, but uh, to... to uh, relegate that to, uh, you know, to say that they're not guilty because of poor upbringing is, is saying a lot. In such cases, while the decision is voluntary in as much as it does not run counter to the inclination of their desire, it is not free since it is practically impossible for them not to choose that evil. That's known as determinism. It's the product of modern psychology. And as I said, those cases are so rare that passion would so block the the activity of the intellect that you are no longer in a free act. 
that that you are just a, a you know at the, the, the passion is at the control of your body essentially uh, it's just very very rare most of the time people are dragged into things by passion but they know what they're doing they accept the sin and they do it and uh, they are guilty uh, uh, perhaps less guilty because of the vehemence of passion but nonetheless guilty and moral theology says it is very rare that uh, uh, mortal sin what is objectively mortal sin would become venial because of vehemence of passion. It can happen, but it's rare. I mean, that's the traditional moral theology. Here they're, I mean, they're suggesting determinism that, that well, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, just a, a, at the whim of my passions. I, it's just like what Luther said, One, someday God rides me. He says, with his typical sort of uh, vulgar examples, he says, you know, I, I'm a, an ass. And some days God is riding me, and some days the devil is riding me. See, so I'm not responsible for what I do because sometimes grace is there, and sometimes the devil's there. Um, so, um, uh, so the uh, um, it, it's it's uh, it's just wrong. Uh, but it, it gives sort of a blessing to people who are passionate as if they, they are in some way excused, then it's just wrong. So, <clears throat> uh, number 277. Well, this is really good. The family is the principal agent of an integral ecology because it is the primary social subject which contains within it the two fundamental principles of human civilization on Earth. Are you ready? The principle of communion and the principle of fruitfulness. Mm. I was ready for unemployment and loneliness, Your Excellency. I was ready. I no, was... Ecology is way up there. You know, we can't abuse the earth. You're just not with it. Well, he was saying that he didn't find any quotes in the Father, so he quotes his own catechesis of 2015. So. <laughs> Um, so that is uh, um, the end. Uh, let's see. No. Number... I, thought, I, I thought I thought you were really going to be all over two seventy nine, Your Excellency. Well, let's see. <clears throat> oh yes. Nor is it good for parents to be domineering. All right. When children are made to feel that only their parents can be trusted. This hinders an adequate process of socialization and growth in effective maturity. To help expand the parental relationship to broader realities, Christian communities are called to offer support to the educational mission of families, particularly through the catechesis associated with Christian initiation. To foster an integral education we need to renew the covenant between the family and the Christian community. The Synod wanted to emphasize the importance of Catholic schools, which play a vital role in assisting parents in their duty to raise their children. Catholic schools should be encouraged in their mission to help pupils grow into mature adults who can view the world with the love of Jesus and who can understand life as a call to serve God.
<clears throat> For this reason, the church strongly affirms her freedom to set forth her teaching and the right of conscientious objection on the part of educators. Now, what does that have to do with anything? But in any case, uh, parents should not be too domineering. Uh, this, you know, saying this in the context of uh, children running amok, uh, where there is absolutely no discipline in the home, is an absurd statement. Uh, the church should be urging parents to, to be more authoritative with their children and to raise them properly, to drive out of them the effects of original sin through mortification and punishment. Um, and then in 280, we have the need for sex education, of course, you know, and, and, uh, which is was always condemned by the Catholic Church. Uh, Pius XI condemned sex education, but now they call for it. Um, so, I, you know, we won't go through all of that, but... Um, <clears throat> uh, no, there's a number it, of paragraphs there. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, like well, seven paragraphs on it. Yes. <laughs> But it's all the same. I mean, uh, the traditional uh, sex education happens in the family. Uh, women talk to their daughters. Men talk to their sons at the proper time, little by little, as as they grow older. And it is not something that is meant for a classroom, uh, and and you know where where it's publicly discussed. And that's all condemned in Casti Canubii, Pius Eleventh. 1930. And I, I'm one of the sad witnesses of this, Your Excellency. We, uh, in my Novus Ordo uh, school, uh, this was something we were exposed to when I was in fourth grade, so um, 11 or 12 years old. And uh, it was it was shocking. I, I remember the experience. I remember feeling uncomfortable talking about it with adults. I feel uncomfortable being in a classroom with girls talking about it. And there was something in me that... It, I just I, I felt really challenged, but I thought, well, the you know the priest told us to come. You know, this is something that we're doing at school. I go to a Catholic school, and um, and I, I I just remember those emotions that I went through, and it's it's a traumatic thing to inflict on a child. It is. It, it is uh, uh, by its very nature a private thing. By its very nature. And it is not meant to be taught as if it were biology or chemistry or physics. It, it is something private and also uh, the morality of all of the things that regard sex should be communicated with the education, and which is done, as I said, in the family. Notice in two, 283, it is always irresponsible to invite as adolescents to toy with their bodies and their desires as if they possessed the maturity, values, mutual commitment, and goals proper to marriage. I mean, you know, they're obviously talking about masturbation, I'm sorry to bring up. Uh, it's irresponsible? What about hell? What about mortal sin? And that they, they don't have the maturity, values, and mutual commitment. As if if they had these things, it would be okay. That's the implication. Right, right. That, that, that's what's being held out there. Yes, and in the UCAT, you know, they, they are very, very lax concerning masturbation. Very, very lax. Uh, I, I don't have it in front of me right I now. I think you say against solidarity, I think. Ho holy what? 
it's a sin against soli- sol- sol- solidarity. solidarity. Yeah, yeah it, you know, it's uh, they say it's not a terrible thing. You know. No, it's, it's uh, that's a whole other show. Is the UCAT? Uh, if anybody uses it, I don't think they have any use to catechize. So there's it, probably you just have to call it the cat because there is no you. <laughs> Um, like because I found the the uh, I recently gave a talk in Fresno, and I found this statistic that eighty percent of those who are baptized in the Novus Ordo leave the church by age twenty three. Eighty percent. Well, I'm surprised they're around that long. <laughs> I mean, that gets them all the way through college. I mean, that's the Newman Center and all of that stuff. So. Yes, but that that is a devastating statistic for them. Devastating. And that's in this country where there's more people going to church than in Europe. That's in this country. Uh, the seminarian from France told me the other day that when young people see the cassock on the street in France, they think that you are a Muslim because they don't know what it is. They have no idea. They think you're an imam or, or some sort of Muslim clerk. Because they don't know what well, the cassock is. Even, even uh, when we were in Hungary, uh, when when Father McKenna was there a, a couple years ago, uh, we we went out for uh, to uh, to catch up later in the evening, and we were walking through the streets, and you know, Hungary, which is still culturally Catholic in lots of ways, we got stares everywhere we went. You know, what yeah. is this? What is what is this uh, man in a cassock doing? Uh, it was uh, it was interesting. Yes. So. Uh... Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're gone. Um, in number 285, it says sex education should help young people to accept their own bodies and to avoid, like, what else are you going to do? <laughs> what kind of stupid statement is that? To accept your own body? What else would you do with your body except accept it? And to avoid the pretension, quote, to cancel out sexual difference because one no longer knows how to deal with it, unquote. <clears throat> and this is, uh, <clears throat> this is a quote from himself again. <laughs> you know, one of the fathers of the church. His favorite author. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's just typically modernist things that, that they're saying. <clears throat> um, uh, notice 286, we have subtle hints uh, about being transgender. Uh, we're going to have to quote here because we, we, we have to listen to this. Nor can we ignore the fact that the configuration of our own mode of being, whether as male or female, is not simply the result of biological or genetic factors. Well, what else is involved but of multiple elements having to do with temperament, family history, culture, experience, education, the influence of friends, family members, and respected persons, whoever they are, as well as other formative situations. It is true that we cannot separate the masculine and the feminine from God's work of creation, which is prior to all our decisions and experiences, and where biological elements exist which are impossible to ignore. (laughs) Well, at least they have conceded that. But, 
it is also true that masculinity and femininity are not rigid categories. <clears throat> it is possible, for example, that a husband's way of being masculine can be flexibly adapted to the wife's work schedule, taking on domestic chores or some aspects of raising children does not make him any less masculine or imply failure, like making cookies, irresponsibility or cause for shame. Children have to be helped to accept as normal such healthy exchanges which do not diminish the dignity of the father figure which is a lot of nonsense. It does um, reduce him. A rigid approach turns into an over-accentuation of the masculine or feminine, a rigid approach, and does not help children and young people to appreciate the genuine reciprocity incarnate in the real conditions of matrimony. As if it's like two semi-males and semi-females getting married. See, I mean, the, the distinction here is between male and female is, is very blurry. Such rigidity, and you know, that's, that's like hell, that's from hell. Rigidity, in turn, can hinder the development of an individual's abilities to the point of leading him or her to think, for example, that it is not really masculine to cultivate art or dance, or not very feminine to exercise leadership. This, thank God, has changed, but in some places, deficient notions uh, st uh, still condition the legitimate freedom and hamper the authentic development of children's specific identity and potential. See, so do you see the blurring of the sexes there, which is a very common thing today that, that you know, men should be a little feminine and women should be masculine. That's very common. Very common that, that, that masculinity and femininity do not go with the, your sexual nature. That, that you can be a, a feminine man or a masculine woman and that, that's really no problem. And there's no condemnation of the transgender movement there. And he, don't forget, he, uh, he invited transgenders into the Vatican. Uh, on more than one occasion, not only Diego and his quote-unquote wife, but also some other transgender who came to see him, invited right into the Vatican. So, you know, actions speak louder than words. <clears throat> um, no, I just was wondering, I mean, if what would be masculine and what would be feminine in the nose order? I mean, they, they, they don't give a, like a what we have to think about as masculine or feminine. Um, the, the, the only says that we, we kind of think that it is not, it is feminine to dance or art or whatever, and it's not masculine, the uh, leadership, but they don't explain what it is to be masculine. Um, um, so we're going to, to number nine now. Um, just uh, have to find it. Also, personally, I have always noticed, I don't know if everybody else has noticed, but the people that I have known in the Novo Sordo, they always speak in a feminine manner. Uh, the priests, seminarians, 
and sometimes even in a, in a is discussed you know that you cannot even and they promote that in the seminary so the priest has to be femi uh, effeminate basically so i don't know if uh, this has to do with the is that too rigid of a category or something but i was noticed that uh, um looking at chapter nine now that we are nearing the end dear listeners thank you for uh going through this text with us i think in chapter seven we missed uh, one of one, uh, one of his blasphemies so you i don't know you go are, ahead the one that says that uh our lord allowed his feet to be anointed by a prostitute um again without mentioning that, that that she was in a process at the moment. Right, that she was a penitent. Uh, and so... Uh, I have, and at that, uh, yes, uh, because he's confusing the anointing and the the washing. But she was penitent at, at the washing of the feet and, and anointed as she was no longer a prostitute at the anointing. So, but I think we are at the end um no there is nothing significant number nine number nine go ahead it's um a little probably i mean a little image for you uh, moreover moments of joy relaxation celebration and even sexuality can be experienced as a sharing in the full life of the resurrection so that's like that's in the spirituality of marriage point uh, that the number is 317 going back to the liturgy of or the, uh, the theology of the body it, it associates uh, the sex act with something sacred which is typically We're pagan back to the liturgical act again yes it, it's pagan to do that it uh, it is not something sacred. It is uh, it it's something moral. It has an order to God, definitely, an order of morality to God. But it is not something sacred. Just to to sort of add insult to injury, Your Excellency, uh, at the very end, um, given on the nineteenth of March, the solemnity of Saint Joseph. I mean. What a what a slap in the face to to the head of the Holy Family. This yes, and Joseph most chaste. Just, you know, all of the when we think of Saint Joseph, we think of chastity right away. And uh, yes, the head of the Holy Family, all three of whom were virgins. And in point, by the way, point at the end, three twenty-five. It's interesting how he says that we have to stop demanding. Uh, of our impersonal relationships a perfection, a purity of intention uh, and a consistency which we will only encounter in the kingdom to come, basically that yeah, we are all uh, I mean, <laughs> following the rules of morality that's only in, basically heaven, but now we shouldn't demand of ourselves um, perfection, purity of intention consistency, and we have to understand, it says it also keeps us from judging harshly those who live in situations of frailty. So basically that uh, there's all of those um, challenging situations, or even if we ourselves find ourselves in the not being very uh, in, the, in the way of perfection or 
have purity of intention or we lack consistency in the spiritual life, that that's okay after this document says. Don't forget, chapter 8 is where he calls marriage an ideal, but there are other lesser things that, that uh, you know, are the products of human weakness and so forth that uh, can, uh, you know, where there's extenuating circumstances. That's that's chapter 8, where marriage, Catholic marriage is considered an ideal to, to shoot for, but, you know, many people don't make it. And then there's that famous thing about the footnote, you remember that, where the footnote says that essentially uh, married uh, divorce and remarried people can receive uh, the Holy Eucharist. And when challenged by that, he was on his way back from Lesbos, when challenged about that, uh, the, the reporter said, does this mean that uh, there's been a change in the church's teaching concerning this? And he said, yes, definitely. And uh, uh, the uh, then she brought up the, the footnote uh, about uh, sacramental practice and all that, that they should be admitted to the sacraments. It says that effectively. He said, I don't remember <coughs> writing that footnote. That was his comment, that that he repudiated the footnote, which is key in that whole thing. And that is that that they are able to receive uh, Holy Communion or the Novus Ordo Communion wafer. Uh, they are That they are able to do that. And he said, you know, I don't remember writing that footnote. Well, did you read the document? Maybe. You know, the, the footnote is there. All you have to do is go on the Internet. You can find the document with the footnote. You know, it, it's dishonest. It, it is to, to treat people in a, in a childish way as if we're, we're just nincompoops that are going to, to listen to that and be satisfied with that sort of talk. Well, uh, Your Excellency and Father, we're, we're at the end of this document. Um, you, you had a chance, obviously, this document came out back in March, and, and we had our, our episode on that right away. We covered it for our listeners, and we've had a chance to slowly unpack this now. So I wanted to know what your reflection is on, on taking this longer, deeper dive into this garbage. Um, Father, I'll ask you first, and then uh, Your Excellency, what, what are your reflections on on a more comprehensive look at this document. Uh, well, I, first of all, I am still waiting for the clarification that Bishop Schneider asked for from the Vatican. So, <laughs> once that comes, uh, I will probably that will solve all the problems because it will re um, uh, re uh, know, iterate uh, the the teaching of the Catholic Church about all of these things after the, the clarification. But for now, we have the document only. Without the clarification, and uh, I think it's very clear those who uh, Cardinal Bork, I think he said that this only the personal opinion of Francis. I think he saw that the whole document was so bad that if this belongs to the magisterium of the church, in their view, that would be <laughs> really bad, uh, and there's no you cannot uh, give a, a good spin to it. So you have to. Uh, take the authority from it, saying this only the the personal opinion of Francis, and that probably you will fool some people and believe me that. Uh, but of course, uh, that that's absurd. That uh, uh, that's is really absurd. And also because it, um, if you ask someone, if I in the Novus Ordo want to follow the all the this uh, teaching in the, in the document, the question is, I am 
doing a good thing or or is is a something bad morally speaking so if i follow the if i am a no sort of priest and i give communion to somebody who is divorced and remarried without repentance etc and don't consider him or her uh, excommunicated etc so if i follow all of that is that a good thing or a bad thing so um of course all of that is bad and if you follow this uh, it harms uh, souls and that, that's the answer so the uh, whatever they want to do, they know so the conservatives ignore the document or reject the document, attack the document. They never answer the question. If somebody like a novo soto priest were to follow the directives of the of the document, is he doing a good thing or a bad thing following the teaching of his pope? So um, the novo the novo soto conservatives always have this parallel church, and their people probably they will never see that this. I don't know, who knows, but they may protect the people from the document, but the, um, they never answer the, the question about the universal church and, and the parish and the diocese. If they put into effect this, is that a good thing or a bad thing? The same thing with Vatican II. The, this is always quite a matter of interpretation. They never answer if all the bishops and, all, and, the, and their pope um, uh, are teaching that religious liberty is a right of the human person and the humanism is, is good, etc., etc. If if I follow that, I am doing a good thing or a bad thing. If I follow the, uh, the, the I mean, their teaching, if I obey their, their teaching, they never answer that. They only say, no, it's, you have to do, uh, if you see a problem, you have to go to what is traditional and, and interpret everything in a traditional manner. But they never answer the question about those who do not interpret in a traditional way. Are they doing a good thing or a bad thing? So that's what uh, for me is almost, um, I don't know, insincere, I don't know how you call it, uh, dishonest on their part, that they only basically protect their own people, but the, from these documents, and they try to preserve tradition for themselves, uh, they never answer the question about everybody else. They are following the Novo Sordo, and they are following the, the false religion, and they, I mean, that seems to be okay. Yes, I would. Uh, I see two big things in it. One is naturalism. The the whole thing is is soaked in naturalism. Uh, the other is that it is a an abandonment of the natural law, and I think that is as big as Vatican II itself. That as bold as Vatican II is, as bold as the as Paul the Sixth and John Paul II and and Benedict, well, we'll we'll, ex we'll take out Benedict there, but the uh, you didn't see a, a this universal approval of abandonment of the natural law by means of the approval of fornication and adultery. And if these people are able to approach the communion rail, if these people are uh, considered to be in irregular but acceptable situations because of some weakness or some exception. That is abandonment of the natural law. Uh, once you abandon the natural law, you, you go down the moral drain and there's, there's no bottom to it. Uh, that the Catholic Church should abandon the natural law, at least, you know, in, in the view of the world, is, is an absolute disaster. And as, as I said, this document is as big as Vatican II itself. So, uh, 
you know, it, it's it's enormous, and uh, the yes, the, it's another uh, nightmare for the Novus Ordo conservative to try to, in some way, put together Roman Catholicism and the approval of fornication and adultery in certain circumstances. But don't forget Ratzinger, you know, who was upheld as as the conservative god. Uh, he was the one that permitted the use of birth control devices, which is contrary to the natural law. Uh, so, um, you know, this is not the first time we've seen it, but it's the first time that you have a quote-unquote papal document approving of these things. Well, Your Excellency and, and Father, thank you for uh, another excellent episode uh, deconstructing this document. Um, again, unlike the the uh, the recognize and resist who are happy to sort of pontificate and have uh, laymen tell us what's going on. One of the things that I pride uh, we're proud of here at Restoration Radio is we don't mess around with that. We have the, the clergy instruct us and, and help us look at these documents uh, and and show us what's wrong. And we're really grateful for your time. And uh, we'll let you get back to uh, finishing up the seminary school year. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you have any questions for uh, His Excellency or Father, questions, that's question with an S, at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that the flagship show is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found the show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.